according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs 21. I'm really happy to be here this morning. I did not want to cancel today because this is our final Proverbs class for the year. We'll have the next three Wednesdays off in the morning. Um, I'll have pulpit coverage in the evening. Um, and we're having a singing night on the 23rd. So, uh, so that's going to be a blessing. Looking forward to that. But we won't resume uh, Proverbs until, uh, until January. All right, Proverbs 21. And um, I think we wrapped up. I got a little bit more to, to tie together the last details out of verse 15 because the workers of iniquity are terrified. And we want to make sure that we understand that. The exercise of justice is a joy for the righteous, but it is terror to the workers of iniquity. And then we'll get to verse 16, which I've been looking forward to. A uh, man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. And uh, there's kind of a basic level that you can read that and, and uh, move on. But then there's more in-depth material because the vocabulary is so interesting and I think it's quite profound, actually, when we talk about the assembly of the dead. So uh, we'll spend some time with that here this morning as well. All right. And if I do go over the hour, somebody just wave and let me know because I cannot see the clock. I did have an eye appointment this morning. My eyes were dilated. You all look blurry and drunk, I tell you. that's <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to open this up with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll trust our Father's faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in, in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. I, th I do thank you for this class and thank you for your grace that allows this class to continue. We uh, ask for your blessing upon uh, our study today, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, open our ears, soften our hearts. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs chapter 21 and... Last week we were dealing with the uh, expectation for gracious treatment of the poor. And uh, the verse there in verse 13, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. So when you uh, understand the discipline of the Lord whereby He turns off His hearing, whereby He chooses not to listen to your prayers as a, uh, a facet of God's discipline, that's... Uh, that's a terrible thing. All right, so that was point 10 in the outline. God's wisdom details his expectations for gracious treatment of the poor. And he makes his expectations known. And he lays it out there and he holds us accountable. That we, we want to be gracious in our dealings with one another because God has been so gracious in his dealings with us. And it uh, really expre expresses a, a lack of forgiveness and, uh, and a tremendous uh, arrogance to, uh, to not forgive others even as we have been forgiven. All right, Doug? All right. So uh, we dealt with that. Then we dealt with uh, the bribery issues. And then we uh, talked about the exercise of justice. And the exercise of justice that we see here in verse 15, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but it is terror to the workers of iniquity. And um, this is where we ran out of time last week. The exercise of justice 
is the visible manifestation of it. It's the human exercise. It's when we reflect God's standards. It's not justice as an abstract or the essence of God, but it is the exercise of it, when God's essence is reflected in public life. And uh, when we do, when, when our judges issue their rulings, or when, when we engage in free market economics, when we trade, we want to have just uh, balances, just uh, balanced scales. We, we can't have differing weights. Anything that we do that's shady in that regard is, uh, is, is, is an attack on the justice of God. God is a God of truth and justice and integrity. And so um, these kind of perversions of justice are, um, are horrible related to this. So uh, God's essence is reflected in public life. And uh, Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The judgment is God's, that you are in God's place. You are representing God. You are His agent, His tool. And if you pervert that office, then you, um, you're turning God into uh, a partaker of your deceit. And this is uh, unacceptable. Second Chronicles 19, 5-7. through seven. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, consider what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. And this uh, is probably the most explicit of all the passages that lay it out there that, that uh, not only does it indicate that you are His representative, that He's put you in office to be faithful in that office, but that He, he remains. He doesn't just hand that to you and go off and ignore it and, and you know, do His God things while He leaves you here on earth to do your, your earthly things. He's right there with you. And that uh, if you make Him party to your own unrighteousness, then the, uh, the judgment is upon you. Likewise with political leaders, and this is where Romans 13, I mentioned last week, that uh, there seems to be a bit of a debate about this, that uh, there's a tendency on the part of some who want to rewrite this text. And we're not free to do that. We're not God's editors. We're not His co-authors. We're not, uh, we can't add to the Word of God, take away from the Word of God, change the Word of God. And um, if, we, if we insert an adjective into the text that's not that God didn't put in the text, then, uh, then, then we're setting ourselves up for judgment. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And the folks who don't like that want to put a, you know, add a disclaimer or put some kind of an expression in there that, well, only the righteous authorities, you know, that, that we don't have to be subject to the unrighteous authorities. And, uh, and what they're doing is they're, they're making a, a theological insertion there. And, and they have a little bit of a basis on the basis of Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. And those principles are true. That uh, we may disobey government if, uh, if that's necessary in order to obey God. Then, uh, but that's, that has no bearing on this text because I think at that point you're conflating obedience with submission. And we can't do that. And uh, I'm glad that we're getting this here in Proverbs and we're also getting it in Colossians and we're also getting it in Genesis. So God simultaneously is giving Austin Bible Church a triple dose of subjection <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Okay, 
So in the Colossian subjection, it's uh, wives be uh, in subjection in, in the middle voice, so the wives do it and experience the results in both an active and passive way uh, that the middle voice communicates. Uh, the husband does not subject his wife. That's the, uh, the forceful subjection. That's the, the uh, forced bondage. Uh, but that's the role in creation, that uh, Adam was commanded to subdue the earth. And so we do subdue the earth, and we have sovereignty over the earth, and we enslave the earth. And if we're not happy with where a river's going, we can dam the river, we can move the river, we can reroute the river, we can, uh, if we don't like where a tree is, we can chop that tree down. That's, that's the Adamic mandate to subdue the earth. And in an active voice, you are doing it. You are subduing the earth. And you didn't ask the earth if it wanted to be subdued. You didn't uh, ask permission. You didn't request, you know, the, the grass. Is it okay if I cut you today? You just cut the grass when you want to because you're the, the sovereign under the Adamic subduing mandate. So you see why that's a difference? <laughs> why husbands don't subdue their wives uh, like Adam subdued the earth, but wives are commanded to, to put themselves in submission, to keep yourself in submission. So we've had these different submission principles and here's the one from Proverbs that relates to um, government. And so we are to be in subjection and realize subjection is not obedience. That uh, wives be in subjection, children obey your parents. Two separate verbs, two separate verses. And uh, Colossians lays them both out there. So be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. And so if it exists, God establishes it. If it doesn't exist, God removed it, see, because He opens doors and closed doors. He, he is God's sovereignty that establishes the times and the epochs. It's God's sovereignty that appoints their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And so if it exists, it's because God put it there. And we are to be in subjection. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so verses 1 and 2 there, the verb for subjection and the verb for resisting. Whoever resists, and this is a, the, the, the tandem word study you go through when you have hupotasso for subjection and you have antitasso for uh, resisting. Just change the prefix from hupo to anti and uh, keep the tasso the same in both verbs and, uh, and you have both of your studies there. I'm either in subjection or I'm resisting and uh, we cannot be resisting. Now this is a joy for believers and it's a terror to those who are still under eternal condemnation. And the reason why it's a terror is because um, their, their, their deeds are dark, that they, uh, they don't come to the light they are um, accountable and they spend their whole lives denying the accountability that they have. But at a certain point you can't deny it anymore. <laughs> so uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And what's the will of the Father? Believe in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. This is the work of God. And uh, you know they ask him, what, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And uh, real tongue in cheek there, but Jesus says, you want to work the works of God? Great, believe. <laughs> okay? It's not a work, but we can call it a work. 
You want to work the works of God? Then believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, this is the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to you on that day, Lord, Lord, <clears throat> did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look how religious these people are. And look at their spectacular form of Christianity. And uh, today, of course, the modern reflection of this is in the, the Pentecostal charismatic type uh, branches of, of Christendom. And uh, they've got a very spectacular form of, of, of Christianity. But how many of them actually know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? See, depart from me, I never knew you is the answer here. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's some more work we can do on that, but we'll let that go for this morning. But you talk about a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. I mean, how terrifying is it to hear these words? That I never knew you. And uh, depart from me. So this is... uh, this is the uh, the terror, and to to rest in the assembly of the uh, of the dead is what we're going to be looking at in the next verse, in verse sixteen. And so, when I see this connection here between verse fifteen and verse sixteen, the terror to the workers of iniquity, and uh, and then in verse sixteen, resting in the assembly of the dead, that uh, yeah, the the eyes of him with whom we have to do is a, is a fearsome thing. The fear of the Lord is there for a reason because our God is an awesome God. <clears throat> Something else to consider, I don't know if this ever crossed your mind or not, but we know, right, that from Revelation chapter 20 that the, the great white throne judgment, when these words will be spoken, that everyone that's cast into the lake of fire is, is, is cast into the lake of fire from the great white throne judgment, that that is after the millennium. That is after the millennium. And, and in order to convene that judgment, all of the dead unbelievers have to be brought out of, out of hell. Death and Hades give up the dead that are within them so that they can stand before the great white throne judgment. And, uh, and that's not until after the millennium. And so if you think about it, these, these people here that are saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name perform many miracles they're recounting what they think is to their credit they're recounting uh all the human good effort and religiosity that they that they experienced in their lifetime but what have they been doing since then they've been in hell this whole time right they died and and if they're church age saints or or if, if, if they were alive during the time that Christ was, was alive, they, they've been in hell for the last 2,000 years. They've been, uh, they've been in hell, you know, Old Testament unbelievers, Cain and all the unbelievers before the flood, they've been, they've been in hell for 6,000 years now. And they're going to stay in hell for at least another 1,007, assuming the rapture comes today and the tribulation starts tomorrow, which doesn't have to, but... Um, the, the great white throne is a minimum of 1,007 years away. And I think you know, a few years more for the transition between the church and the tribulation. And so these, these people that have been in hell this whole time, I don't know, have they been rehearsing this little speech? Lord, Lord, you know? Have they been, did they think it was all just a big mistake? That, that uh, you know, God must have gotten it wrong because I'm so righteous I should be with Him. And, uh, and yet they've been in hell this whole time until he brings them out to stand before him at the great white throne. In any event. John chapter 3. 
do that right? Okay. John 3.18, of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is not a promise to go to heaven when you die, this is a guarantee that you have eternal life right here, right now, assuming that you have believed in Jesus, whosoever believes. So uh, you have eternal life and you can't ever lose it, eternal security of course. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And so judgment does not scare us. The exercise of judgment, we're fine with that. Because our, the judge is our Father. Actually, He's given all judgment to the Son. So the, the judge is our Lord, our Savior. And we're not terrified of judgment. We know that we've been made righteous. We know that our sins have been paid for. We know that judicially, even though by experience we're all sinners, judicially that sin is removed, that we are declared righteous in His sight. So judgment day is not a terrifying thing for us. And present judgment is not a terrifying thing for us. We're, we're pleased to be evaluated in the here and now because that keeps us on the, on the straight and narrow, that keeps, uh, that keeps our walk where it should be. But for those that have not been adjusted to the judgment of God, right? Adjusted to the judgment function and the justice of God. For those who are still in their sin, judgment is terrifying. That's why most of them will profess atheism even though they don't believe it. Only a fool says there is no God and, and the biggest of the fools can talk themselves into it at a certain point and act all tough like they don't believe there's a God. But I tell you in the darkness of their soul in the middle of the night when no one's around they know there's a God because they're made in His image. So uh, he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. See, that's the default position. That's the lost estate in Adam. And so there's no in-between. There's no middle ground. From the moment of your physical birth, like the, the sweet little baby girl that we prayed for Sunday morning, and she has physical life and she's in this world with physical life, but she's an unbeliever. She's condemned in Adam has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. So here's fallen humanity in a fallen world. No one's seeking after God and no one would deserve it if they tried. But the light came into the world. He came to find us. The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. This is why judgment terrifies them. You mean a fair judge with a standard of righteousness? Oh no, no, no. How can I pervert that? How can I bribe my way out of that? That's, uh, the world wants nothing like fairness and righteousness. Even when they're, uh, they, they, they spend seven days a week protesting what they find to be unfair. And they can have all these other social protests about every other unfairness in the world that they imagine. But the absolute standard of righteousness and justice, that terrifies them. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth, and this relates well to that exercise of justice that we have in Proverbs 21. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So we can appreciate that as well. All right. 
And so it's neat. I tell you, if you get a political leader, if you get a man in office or a woman in office, if you get a, a person in office, and they understand their role as stewards of God's grace, and they understand their role as ministers of God, whether it's in an executive branch, judicial branch, legislative branch, uh, it is, it's a marvelous thing. And, and I enjoy talking to those kind of believers because they know that's their ministry field, that's their pursuit, that God has gifted them and God has called them and God has placed them. And uh, that's a ministry calling like uh, pastoring a church is a ministry calling. That They feel called to political service or to judicial service or um, whatever as the case may be. I was blessed uh, about a month ago, two months ago, to meet a uh, Supreme Court justice for the state of Texas and his wife, um, who's been to this building now four or five times because we have meetings once a month. But um, anyway, it's neat that he's a born-again believer and that he understands his place, that he's serving in the Texas State Supreme Court, and, uh, and uh, that, that God has put him there to reflect divine norms and standards, to reflect the, the biblical standard of righteousness as reflected in the laws of the state of Texas. And uh, that's, uh, that's a greatly encouraging thing. All right, well, let's get on to verse 16 then and see how far we get with this. I really can't see the clock, so we'll either go long or early, and I won't tell either way. <laughs> Have my eyes dilated again this morning. It's terrible. Who does this? All right. Let's talk about fallen humanity, destined for the fiery destruction that's prepared for fallen angelity. And this is uh, kind of an interesting concept that I didn't even think about until maybe a year ago, two years ago, <clears throat> pretty, pretty recently. Um, but it just hit me like, like a two-by-four when I read it and said, wait a minute, you know what that means? The significance of that? Well, let's start with Proverbs 21, 16. That should be a 16 there, not a 6. Proverbs 21, 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. This is actually a positional truth concept that relates to an Adam, not an Ish, but an Adam. This is Adamic humanity who wanders from the way of understanding. This is the nature of Adam after his fall. The fact is, is that they, uh, we're going to talk about this in Genesis, what was the, the point of being tested in innocence without having the knowledge of good and evil? And then by sinning and obtaining the knowledge of good and evil, that was a consequence. God said, behold, man has become, Adam has become like us, knowing good and evil. And this is now the uh, the fall of man, isn't this interesting, described as wandering or staggering or being led astray from the way of understanding. And uh, this to me I think is marvelous because there's a difference between leaning on our own understanding and in all your ways acknowledging Him and He will make your path straight. And so their desire for knowledge meant they were departing from the way of understanding. And uh, well, we're going to talk about this some more too because this is, uh, I think this is uh, a big key related to the, the fall and why that tree was planted and why they were forbidden in, uh, in the process to be tested in their innocence in, uh, in that way. So a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. This, uh, this is, of course, the fallen estate. This is what they're destined for. 
Uh, they're not going to go to heaven when they die. They're going to go to hell and then they're going to be brought out of hell to stand at the great white throne and they're going to be cast after that into the lake of fire and that's where they will spend all eternity forevermore in the lake of fire. But the phrase assembly of the dead grabs my attention and there's some concepts here that are worthy of some much more deeper uh, studies and, uh, and things to deal with there. Before I get to that though, um, let me finish this point by reading the verse out of Matthew. Because the fiery destruction was not prepared for us. The fiery destruction was not prepared for Adam and Eve. The fiery destruction was prepared for Satan and, and the angels that followed after. And this is the sheep and goat judgment. And uh, without reading the whole thing here, get that larger there. But this is when the king arrives, this is when Jesus descends and, and when Jesus conquers and then he sits for judgment. And the first judgment he has is the Jewish judgment that's uh, featured in Ezekiel chapter 20 and then the second judgment he has is for the Gentiles and that's sheep and goats as we deal with it here in Matthew 25. So the king will say to those on his right, come, come you who are blessed of my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And notice that the kingdom has a human preparation. The kingdom is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And um, for I was hungry and you, the, the, we understand they didn't earn this, they didn't deserve this, they didn't work their way into the kingdom by doing good deeds. The things that he lists here is to their credit is based upon their righteousness. It's very key in verse 37 that we read, then the righteous will answer him, Lord. Right? So we understand that they are positionally saved. The only way to become righteous is to have that imputed to your account when you believe uh, in, in Christ for eternal life. And so I think too many folks miss that and they think that this, is, this message is teaching a system of works whereby if you do good things to the Jewish people, you know, give them clothes when they're naked or feed them when they're hungry and visit them in prison. If you do enough good deeds you can earn your way into the kingdom. That's not what this passage is saying. The good deeds are a reflection of their righteousness. And they're blessing the Jewish people because of their righteousness. So the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did to me. And so he's talking to the righteous but he's also referencing how well they treated his brothers. So obviously this is not a church age context where all of the righteous are always the brothers who are brothers in Christ and we're born again believers in the church age. But this is dealing with tribulational saints whereby the righteous are the righteous Gentiles and these brothers of mine, Jesus is pointing to uh, Israel, pointing to the Jews as his brother in this context. See, I don't know, if you're not a dispensationalist, don't how do you handle some of these things? I think you need to get twisted around and confused and backwards and more often than not that's, that's what ends up happening. But anyway. So, to the extent you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did to me. And I think on that basis they get to enter into the kingdom and then perhaps they have additional rewards that they're blessed with. It doesn't really say that though. It doesn't say that he honors them with treasure or gold, silver, precious stones. None of that language is here. This, this evaluation seems to be just pass-fail. And if you pass, 
you know, like some kind of a COVID screening and they take your temperature and then they say, okay, you can come in. This, if this is pass-fail for tribulational survivors, they get to enter into the millennium if they're saved. If they're not saved, He kills them. He, if they're not saved, they're not coming into the millennium. It's kind of miraculous they survived the tribulation, honestly. But if they're not saved, then He sends them to hell for a thousand years until He brings them back for the great white throne judgment. And so um, this is a pass-fail for entering into the kingdom or not. It is not, here's the thing, it is not comparable to the great white throne because the unbelievers will eventually get there. And it's not comparable to the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, it's not an end-of-life evaluation where um, your, your works are critiqued and your reward remains and you get an eternal reward, you get to enter into glory. This is not an end-of-life evaluation. These mortals are still mortal and they're going to go into the millennium still mortal. And they can't receive an end-of-life evaluation because it's, it's just a midterm. It's, it's, just a, it's not an end-of-life final. They're going to enter into the, into the millennium and have babies and, and birth a new generation and raise the first millennial generation. Not, not these guys, they call them millennials, that's hilarious. The millennials are the, the ones that are after the tribulation. Anyway, to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, accursed ones. The accursed ones are the ones that have not believed in Christ for eternal life. They are damned, if you will, in the biblical use of the term. They are accursed ones into the eternal fire. Now, here I'm, I'm leading up to this because this is this hit me like a ton of bricks. The kingdom was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But notice, the fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. The fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. That, I think, is striking. It was, hell is not designed for humanity. Hell was designed for the devil and his angels after they fell. This is so huge because if... if you cannot dispute, or people try, <laughs> Satan, the fall of Satan was before the fall of man. The fall of Satan was before even the creation of man. And that's where people try to argue and fight and nitpick. But the fall of Satan was before the creation of man and the, the design, creation and design of hell. This eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels before Adam and Eve were ever on the scene. So fallen humanity is destined to the fiery destruction prepared for fallen angelity. And that's the point that uh, I believe we can glean out of Proverbs 21, 16 and additional passages that relate to the realm of the dead. Where, uh, where do the dead go? And even the small and the great, we're told, because there's different classifications of dead. And uh, death and Hades give up the dead that are within them, and the sea gives up the dead that is within them. And uh, there's different categories of dead and different placements of confinement until all of them end up in the lake of fire. So a man who wanders from the way of understanding, in other words, fallen humanity. We'll talk about wandering and understanding and all this. Uh, all these terms need to be defined. They need to be defined. And this is great 
I posted this verse on Facebook last week or the week before, a couple weeks ago. And um, one of my atheist friends commented on it. Somebody we've been praying for, for him to get saved. And uh, because I think maybe he suspected maybe he was in this verse somewhere. (laughs) He wanted to know, have I wandered? What does that mean to wander? And understanding, what does it mean to understand? What's you know, you got to define your terms. And, and as soon as he wrote that on, on the Facebook comment, man, I was thrilled. Because he's exactly right. You've got to define your terms. Let's see what happens here. And, and yes, you have wandered. We all wander. Because this is the same verse that's used in Isaiah, the same verb that's used in Isaiah 23 that says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And so the, verse to, the, the, the verb to go astray in Isaiah 53, that's this verb here for wandering. And in fact, I think wandering is a terrible translation, which is call it uh, he who is led astray, or he who goes astray. And uh, so we all have, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was wounded for our transgressions. And uh, thankfully he paid the price for our iniquity, and it uh, really becomes a good gospel opportunity there. And wandering from the way of understanding. What's the way of understanding about? How does this function? And uh, what is the word for understanding? This is, this is a strange word. It's not the one I'm expecting. So uh, let me just show you here what, uh, what I do with this. Let me go ahead and I'm going to dock this panel. Here we go. And I'm going to be mindful. Of course the desk has to do what the desk has to do to display this. So uh, to wander. To wander. And uh, we'll pull up the lemma there and the word study so we can see our color wheel. The verb is ta'ah. Ta'ah. To wander, to err, to stagger. It would be used of a drunk person that's uh, not just wandering but he's tottering, he's unstable on his feet. You look at all the different ways that it's rendered. It's really too small to see it. But uh, the most common way that it's translated is to stray. And we could do that, we could put that in Proverbs 21:16 here, a man who strays from the way of understanding. That, that, that would work. Or wanders. But we can see the 17 uses that it gets translated uh, stray. Same thing with wandering. We can look at the 12 times that ta'a is translated as wander. But then there's also staggering and uh, being deceived, uh, to err, to seduce. There's other ways that it's rendered there. And so I think uh, finding the, the uh, and, and if this is too much, by the way, this is, Let's just simplify things. Let's change it from all passages. Let's just see how it's used in Proverbs. Start with that. So it'll redraw your color wheel for you. Okay, that's simpler. (laughs) So that that removes all the other books out of the Old Testament. Now we're just looking at Proverbs where we can see the five uses in Proverbs. For stray, astray, leads astray. Almost exclusively in Proverbs, ta'a means to be led astray or to lead somebody astray. This is the one time where it's rendered uh, wander, maybe because the translators felt that they were trying to 
trying to um, stress the active component to this, that this is what the man is choosing to do, but uh, straying, wandering, being led astray, departing from the way of understanding. Anyway, um, so this is, that's the first thing, the issue with wandering. Then the second thing is with understanding. And you're just going to assume, oh, understanding, I know what that is. What's the Hebrew word for understanding? Well, that's bean. I've known that for a long time. Because the founding members of Austin Bible Church were Tilford and Nell Bean. And so uh, bean was one of the first uh, Hebrew words that I learned. I thought that was really cool. And uh, so for English, if, if you need to know the Hebrew word for English, it's bean. Or it's the, you can, uh, there's a feminine ending with bina. Or there's uh, uh, the, the Tau prefix for tabuna. And uh, so now you've got your verb and you've got your noun and, and uh, a feminine noun. And, uh, and you go, okay, yeah, this is, this is the dominant word here for being until you look at Proverbs 21 and you say, oh, wait a minute. It's not being in Proverbs 21. This is unusual. It's sakau. Well, that jumps out at me because sakau is this little guy way over here. You see that little orange thing that flies out of the, out of the wheel there? This is, this is not the usual word for understanding. This is, uh, this is something entirely different. This is, uh, it's only used eight times. There's eight times where it's translated as understanding, but is, it, is understanding really the best rendering for this word? Because it's not being, it's not bina, it's not tabuna, it's sakau. And uh, it may be that understanding is not the, the best way to, to render this. And how else is this term used? So this gets my attention, sakau. I want to do some work with sakau. Let's take a look at sakau. Because sakau is used more than eight times. Look at that, sakau is used 60 times. 60 times sakau is used. That's a whole lot more than eight, <laughs> Okay. Well, it's only the eight times that where it's rendered as understanding. Most of the time, sakal is uh, wise or understanding or prosperity or success. It's kind of a hard animal to nail down. Can, can, we, can we make sakal just one English word, please? Probably not. Probably not. Because it, it does seem to be a concept that blends issues of, of, uh, of wisdom whereby making white choices you will prosper, making, uh, having wise applications you will have success. And so somebody that is successful, prosperous, wise, somebody with understanding, somebody that's, and maybe the best blend out of all of these is, um, is, 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 is successful. Somebody that is successful in their life, in their decision making. Because on that basis then they they, uh, they understand, they're prudent, they have uh, success. So back to the fall of Adam. What was it he fell from? And what was it that he lost? What was the path that he was on? The path of Sakau. The path of understanding, wisdom, prosperity, success, insight. It's a, great, it's a great verb for insight, for having those, those moments, those aha moments of, of insight where, ah, I get it now, because the light bulb came on, right? That's that flash of insight. 
that goes with the success and the prosperity and the understanding. In other words, sakal. This is where uh, I think the Hebrews have, uh, have it made because they can have such a beautiful term like sakal that, that com- conveys so much with it that, uh, that we need four or five English words to try to wrap our arms around it. But departing from the way of understanding, the way of success, the way of blessing. And this, uh, of course, we know this, don't we? Doesn't Proverbs tell us this? That in all your ways acknowledge Him, He will direct your steps. Uh, that uh, lean not on your own understanding. Why would you lean on your own understanding when His is available? Okay? And for Adam and Eve before they fell, think about it, this was their whole existence leaning on His understanding because until they ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, what could they possibly do but lean on Him for His understanding? But Satan comes along and tempts him and says, oh, God knows you will be wise knowing the difference between good and evil and it's desirable to make one wise. Well, if the price to pay for that kind of wisdom is to make yourself a sinner, you're not becoming wise, you're departing from the, the way of understanding. You're departing from, you're, you're being led astray from the way of Sokhal, the way of understanding. Now, of course, after the fall, the blessing is to get saved and then to return to the way of understanding by uh, leaning not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledging Him and to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And uh, those issues there. All right, well, good. I'm glad we had a chance to look at those. Reload my basic Proverbs pulpit streaming display. All right. So fallen humanity is destined to the fire of destruction. And this is useful. I think this is a great verse. Uh, I'm, going to be, I'm making a file now and I'm going to be adding this verse to it for Old Testament soteriological principles. In other words, if I didn't have a New Testament and, and I was the father of four children, how would, I lead them, how would I give them the gospel if all I had was the Old Testament? If I'm a Jewish believer in the Old Testament, how would I, how would I preach the gospel? If I don't have John 3.16, if I don't have Acts 16.31, if I don't have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know, I mean, man, all my go-to gospel verses are all New Testament gospel verses. What do I have in the Old Testament? Where is it? Because see, Nicodemus should have known. Jesus said, you must be born again. And are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know? Nicodemus was asking, you know, how can a man be born again, again, you know, and he cannot enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? And, uh, Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know? So the principle of being born again was available to an Old Testament saint. My question is, on the basis of what passages? Where would we turn to? And I think this is a big one. I think there are several others that we would turn to. That we would find, for example, with the the clothing of Adam and Eve and the animal skins. And we would find the uh, principles that are conveyed in, in a variety of passages. Created me a clean heart, O oh Lord. I think uh, we, we, would, we would find other verses that we could use. Again, trying to put myself into an Old Testament mindset and saying, here I'm, you know, 
just a, a Jewish believer from the tribe of whatever and I'm trying to raise my kids up, or I'm a Gentile and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm reading the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Where am I going to find eternal life? Jesus said you search the Scriptures because you think in them you will find eternal life. But it is these that speak of me. So um, anyway, I do think here in Proverbs 21.16 we have a marvelous um, this is like uh, the wages of sin is death. But before Romans 3.23 is written, right? But the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is just the first half of that. The wages of sin is death. A man who wanders <clears throat> from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. That's bad news. If we're giving bad news good news in our uh, evangel uh, gospel approach. Alright. We'll rest in the assembly of the dead. What is the assembly of the dead? This jumps out at you. The assembly of the dead. The Kahel Raphaim. The Kahel Raphaim. In the Septuagint it's translated the Synagogue Giganton. The synagogue of giants. Synagogue Giganton. Of course, the Septuagint's not God breathed and inspired uh, like the Hebrew is, I believe. Kahel Raphaim. Again, you ask yourself, what's the word for assembly? Because there's several. What's the word for dead? There's several. The basic word for dead is muth. But this isn't muth. This is Raphaim. This is a word for the giants. This is the word for the departed spirits. This is a, this is a word that we studied when we did a, a deep uh, angelic conflict study on uh, fallen angels and demons and evil spirits and departed spirits, the disembodied spirits of the giants, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Emim, the Zanzumim, the various terms for the, the giant uh, hybrid beings that... Uh, that uh, were birthed when angels and human women put forth the, uh, the abominations upon this earth. So we have the Kahal Raphaim. And Kahal grabs our attention because Kahal is uh, very frequent. Sometimes it's translated in the Septuagint with synagogue, synagogue. But sometimes it's translated in the, in the uh, Septuagint with ecclesia, with the church, with ecclesia. Okay, But it's not the church church, it's not the body of Christ church, it's the ecclesia, like the congregation of the sons of Israel, for example, most, most often when ecclesia is used in the Old Testament. It's the congregation of the, of the sons of Israel. But we have uh, kahel, we have mo'ed, we have, there's other Hebrew terms that relate to an assembly or a congregation. Sometimes they're blended, they're used together. But this is the Kahal Raphaim, the church of the, of the giants, or the assembly of the departed spirits. Because really the Raphaim uses are quite divided in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are Raphaim with bodies and Raphaims that, Raphaim that have lost their bodies. In other words, the dead Raphaim. <laughs> and the disembodied Raphaim, if it's, if it's in a corporal body mode or in a disembodied mode, uh, generally speaking, the uh, translators use different terms. And so much so that the lexicons even split them up. The lexicons consider them different words. 
uh, Strong's gave two separate word numbers, Strong's numbers, for Rephaim and Rephaim. <laughs> Just the Rephaim with bodies are giants, great big things, terrible things that make us look like grasshoppers. And the Rephaim without bodies are the disembodied spirits, the shades, the shadim, the shades that, uh, that occupy Sheol, that occupy the abyss. So we're going to see some of these usages as well. But they have an assembly. They stand in formation. They, uh, they gather together for a purpose. And one of the greatest things they're gathered for is they're forming a welcome wagon right now for Satan when he arrives. And that's part of the taunt that they're going to be uh, engaged in when he arrives. Because the greatest one among them, the one who's been their king since he fell, he has, uh, he has a destiny in the lake of fire also. And so uh, there's a uh, provision for that. All right, so Kahel Raphaim. And in some cases, uh, rather than translated as giant, uh, the English versions just, just transliterate. Instead of translate, they just give it a capital R and call them the Raphaim. And uh, so instead of translating, they just pretend that a Hebrew word is an English word and they put Raphaim in your Bibles. But the Kahel Raphaim, the assembly of the giants, the synagogue gigantone giants. And gigas, the word for giants, like where we get giga, giga stuff, right? Um, the Because uh, giga is, be- is bigger than mega, right? Mega, mega is pretty small these days compared to the giga, the gigabyte hard drives that we have. So, but the giga, the gigas are the giants. And we know about the giants. We have a whole complete Greek mythology about the giants and and uh, the, the warfare there and the, the battle with the gods and the rise of the, you have the throwing down of the old gods and the rise of Zeus and the other new gods and, and the other thing there. So um, anyway, we're accustomed to giants in, in Greek myth- mythological language, but the giants in the Septuagint, the gigantes that we have, the giants that we have in the Bible are rendering um, different Hebrew words, but all of them are, are interrelated, like Nephilim and Rephaim and Anakim and Zanzumim and Emim and I think I'm forgetting one. But all the various terms for the giants that, uh, that, that have various Hebrew and um, Moabite and Ammonite other words for these giants, the Septuagint trans- translators three centuries before Christ, they just made all of them gigantes, giants. And I find that interesting. Rephaim studies are divided based upon embodiment. And so we got a bunch of verses that are the embodied Rephaim, and then we got a bunch of verses that are the disembodied Rephaim. Rephaim studies are divided based upon embodiment versus disembodiment. Embodiment versus disembodiment. And we're going to go through these verses and we'll see how am I doing on time? Oh my goodness. Does that say 10.51? Okay. Wow, i got to go fast. Let me put this up here. I prepared something a few weeks ago. It's a layout called Rephaim. There we go. This is my Rephaim layout. And you'll notice what Logos does here with Rephaim is um, not just Logos, 
or the, the print books do this, and so Logos is copying what the print books do. Um, you open up Rephaim here, there's your Rephaim in the BDB lexicon, and you notice they put a Roman numeral 1 next to that, and they tell you this is the first um, use or the first category of Rephaim vocabulary, and it's, it's rendered as shades or ghosts. This is the disembodied form. Shades or ghosts, and it gives you links and verses and other information there. And then you scroll down, and the next entry you'll notice is the very same Raphaim, but it just has a Roman numeral 2 next to it. And it, it treats it as if it's two different words. Same spelling, it's really the same word, but they're counting them as two separate words, and they, they list them as heading 1 and heading 2 with, with Roman numerals. Okay? And so, and again, now notice here, it's a proper noun of a, um, of a people group, and it's an old race of giants. An old race of giants. And uh, ancient inhabitants of Canaan, and uh, the reference is there, and uh, as they were killed, and the verse is there. So um, just be advised, if you're, if you're looking at a, at a B2B lexicon and you see a Roman numeral, that uh, whatever that Roman numeral is, go find the other ones, okay? And find how many there are total because uh, you'll be dealing with, usually you're dealing with different roots, you're dealing with different origins, different words. This is a case where I'm not so sure we're talking about different words. That one has a body, but what does a giant turn into when you kill his body? That's my question. When you kill, when you kill a giant who's not purely human and he's not purely angel, he's a hybrid he, and he doesn't have an Adamic sin nature because he's not in Adam. So where does his soul go when he dies? Does he even have a soul? What kind of soul do you get? You know, we understand with, when human men and women procreate that the, the human is body, soul, and spirit. But what is the Nephilim? He's a giant body and what kind of soul spirit does he have? What's the invisible part of a Rephaim? Well, kill the giant and what do you have left but a disembodied Rephaim? Okay? And so my suspicion is, is that a disembodied Rephaim is, is a disembodied Rephaim. Also, by the way, the same Roman numeral 1 shows up there and the same 2, it's not Roman numerals, it's an Arabic numeral, but the 1 and the 2 uh, match. And so Logos went ahead and did color wheels to match the Roman numeral 1 and 2 from the B2B lexicon and the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon. So um, yeah, here's your Rephaim verses and here's your dead spirit verses. Embodied, disembodied. Alright, embodied and disembodied. So, write these verses down and let me close those. And let me go back to this and float this panel. All right. Floating this panel. The floating panel lets me put it up here on top of that. All right. Real quickly then, this is just not fair. 
In the 14th, Genesis 14, 5, Abraham's day. In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kanaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shavah Kiriathim. All three of these are giant clans. And Kedorlaomer was a Gentile king that led five armies in to destroy giant clans. Uh, eight, nine, how many generations is Abraham after the flood? Because remember, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. But the uh, human kings are having none of it. And they're, they're going to war against these giant clans. Genesis 15, 20. The Kenite, Kenazite, Cadmonite, Hittite, Perizzite, and the Rephaim. Notice they're the only non-ites in this list. Then the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. But there were, Rep- there were Rephaim blended in with those Canaanite people groups. Deuteronomy 2. The Lord said to me, do not harass Moab nor provoke them to war. This is when they're, they're, they've been uh, brought out of Egypt. They've, they've wandered for 40 years. They're getting ready to enter into the land. The Lord said to me, do not harass Moab nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession because I've given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now here's a note. The Amim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Amim. So these are giant clans that have different names based upon the language and the region. The Moabites called them Emim. But like the Anakim, another class of giants, they are also regarded as Rephaim. And you get down to verse 20 and there's also the Zanzumim. Regarded as the land of Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. Well, I'm out of time. Um, We'll see. We'll come back to this maybe. Um, I think it's useful for angelic conflict studies. I think it's useful as well. Uh, the valley where David fought Goliath was the valley of Rephaim, the valley of giants. The, uh, the principles of this I think apply in a lot of different ways. And then the shades and the, uh, the parade for Satan when he arrives, I think that's worth looking at as well. So I've uh, got to leave you hanging for a little bit, but we'll come back in January and uh, we'll pick up with this slide right here. So. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thank you for um, allowing the Word of God to go forth and uh, not hampered too terribly, I hope, with uh, the blurry eyes. But Father, you're faithful, and I thank you for hungry brothers and sisters that, uh, that come to be uh, built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. We uh, thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.